Our scripture passage for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, now we ask that as we have now heard your word being publicly read, that it would now do its work in our hearts as your spirit is at work molding our minds and our hearts to receive the preached word. Father, you know all the things that we've had to endure this past week, all the struggles and all the sufferings and all the turmoil and trouble. And Lord, we also see glimmers of bright spots of hope and encouragement, and we thank you for that. But Lord, especially now we ask for the brightest spot to pulsate into our hearts, which is this preached word that we are about to receive. And so, Father, would you speak to us that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. One Saturday morning, a father was in his living room reading a book, whereas by his sides two of his children were playing with their respective toys. And then without warning, one of his children, his son, let out a very loud, exasperated sigh of frustration. And before the father could say a word, his other child, his daughter, asked, What's wrong? To which the son replied, I'm missing a favorite piece of my toy. To which the daughter reacted by simply saying, Well, it's okay. All you got to do is pray, and God will help you find it. As a smile began to creep on the father's face, hearing the budding faith of his daughter, it was quickly erased when he heard his son's retort, which went, No, he won't. He's not real. God's not real. And when the sister asked why her brother would even say such a thing, his son responded, Because I can't see him. He's not real because I can't see him. How can God be real if I can't even see him? You ever felt like that before, Christian? Sure, we all have. And if you find yourself feeling a little bit embarrassed, a little bit ashamed that you happen to share the struggles of a little child, please don't. Because as we come to find, some of the most well-seasoned, some of the most well-learned saints of the Christian faith have also admitted to the struggle of believing in an invisible God. Consider this admission from one of the most world-renowned successful Christian authors today, Philip Yancey. Listen to his confession as he writes, quote, Christians hold out the bright promises of a personal relationship with God. Yet how can I have a personal relationship with a being when I'm never quite sure he's there? Or is there a way I can be sure? How do you sustain a relationship with a being who is imperceptible by the five senses? End quote. See, the central belief of the Christian faith is that an individual can have a personal relationship with God. And yet we come to find that for so many, that's a very hard pill to swallow, evidenced by the rapid decline of Christianity in America. And one of the main reasons why is because of this very idea that we Christians believe in a deity that we cannot see, an invisible God. 
And it's for this that many an atheist will say that this is such an insult to rational thinking. And as a result, it causes many Christians excuse me, of needing to answer for themselves and for their own credibility the main question of today's sermon. And that is, how do we as followers of God justify the belief as well as the idea that God is a loving God when we cannot see Him? How do we hold on to the idea that our God is real and that we can love Him when in fact He is invisible? And that's the question that Peter is going to answer for us as he tells us three things that we need to process because as we do, we'll come to find that not only will it sustain our confidence that our God who is invisible is very real, but He is someone who deeply loves us and who also we deeply love as well. So with that in mind, three things that Peter wants us to understand. First, he's going to teach us about the necessity for an invisible God. The necessity for an invisible God. Then he's going to talk about the revelation of the invisible God. And then he's going to end it with the person who is the invisible God. The necessity for an invisible God. The revelation of the invisible God. And finally, the person who is the invisible God. Let's begin with our first point. The necessity for an invisible God. Read again with me verse 6 where Peter writes the following. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, here we have Peter beginning this part of our section of scripture by acknowledging to his readers that they have been going through tremendous hardships and tremendous tribulations throughout their life, or as he puts it in his own words, that they have been grieved by various trials. And indeed, if you ever read any background commentary of this letter, you would come to find that the recipients of it have been going through severe persecution, severe hardships because of the social environment that they were living in. Consider these words from New Testament scholar Karen Jobes. This is from her commentary on First Peter. She writes, quote, Peter's readers were experiencing various kinds of trials that were causing them varying degrees of grief and suffering. Their Christian faith was being slandered and maligned. Their social status, family relationships, and even their livelihood were being threatened, end quote. So clearly, these folks are going through tremendous trials and tribulations, tremendous setbacks, tremendous sufferings, and Peter finds it necessary for him to acknowledge that to them. But of course that begs the question, why does Peter feel this compulsion to recognize this for them? Why does he feel this conviction to acknowledge that this is indeed their situation? Well, in a nutshell, he wants to convey that he understands the frustrations that they are going through because of the fact that they cannot visibly see God. Let me explain with this personal illustration. Uh, I have five kids, okay, and almost all of them without a doubt hate going to the doctor. You know why? Because every time either they hear from their mother or from me that they need to go to the doctor, the first question coming out of their mouth is, am I going to get a shot? Am I going to get a shot? Am I going to get a shot? That's not three of my different kids asking. That's like one child asking that over and over again. Am I going to get a shot? And one of the things that Sarah and I have learned by now that it's very pointless for us to tell them they're not going to get a shot when indeed they are because when we ever did that foolishly, it just went much worse, like throwing gasoline on a fire. So now what we do is once we get to the doctor's office and we're able to pry them out of the car, one of us will go to the back to the room. And as the doctor and the nurses are setting up the needles, one of us will say the following to our children as they're preparing themselves. Hey, look at mommy. Look at daddy. I'm right here. Hold my hand. Put your head on my shoulder, okay? Just squeeze my hand tight. Look, just hug me. Hold on to me. Just look at me. And as we convey to them 
our visible presence, as we convey to them that we are present right there in the midst of their greatest fear, they're able to face this hardship and endure the suffering that they're about to go through. Because we're taking their mind off of the situation that they're in and we're helping them to focus on the idea that A, they're not alone, and B, somebody actually cares for them in that present moment. And I'm sure many of you have had comparable experiences in your childhood and even throughout your life of that same thing. You're going through some hardship, you're going through some suffering, and someone who dearly cares for you, whether it be a parent, a sibling, a best friend, they're telling you, hey, look at me, I'm right here by your side. You're not going to be alone. We're going to hold hands together. I'll be there by your side. And what do you do? You find the strength to be able to endure whatever struggles, whatever sufferings that you must face. And one of the consequences of that experience is that it inadvertently creates almost a subconscious belief that if only God would be that way with me, if only the Lord Almighty, the King of Kings, the Creator of the cosmos, if only that God could just manifest Himself in, into my life in such a way that's comparable to that, I know I could face whatever hardship that He might throw my way. I know I could endure through any difficulty. But of course... That hasn't been in your experience. Because in your moments of trial and tribulation, you didn't see God at all. The only thing that you could see of God is that you couldn't. And as a result, it left you feeling so frustrated to the point that you would be so audacious to think, does God even care about me? Does God even know what I'm going through? Is He someone who really loves me the way Scripture says He does? Does He even care at all? Hey, Peter understands. He knows the frustration. And he's well aware of how we can interpret the invisibility of God, especially in the midst of our sufferings, as if he's conveying like he doesn't give a rip about us. But here's the thing that you need to understand. Peter is actually going to show us that the opposite is the case. In other words, Peter is going to explain that it's because that God is invisible that he's conveying to you that he cares. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read again verse 8 and 9 of our passage where Peter continues by saying, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, this is such a weird statement, okay? And the reason why it's such a weird statement is because it seems to be communicating something that is absolutely impossible. How could you love someone that you've never seen? How can you rejoice over someone that you've actually not physically met? It's practically impossible. And yet Peter speaks with such certainty that indeed it is possible. In fact, with the level of conviction that you feel coming out of those pages that he has written in Scripture, it almost gets to the point where you almost assume that the opposite is also true as well. That it is possible to see someone to where instead of delighting in them, you're filled with dread. Instead of rejoicing over them, you feel rejected. And indeed, when you read scripture, you come to find that those select few who were privileged to see just a small sneak preview of actual God's visible presence, that was indeed their reaction. I want to draw your attention to an incident that's recorded in the book of Exodus. Chapter 33, here's the setup. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and he's receiving all the laws and the commandments of God that God wants his people to obey. And it's during this interchange that Moses is emboldened to ask this request, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you in all of your fullness. I want to see you with my own eyes. Please, show me yourself. 
Reveal yourself to me. To which God amply responds, No, you cannot. And the reason? In his own words in chapter 33, God says, No one can see me and live. No one can see me and live? Now, please, don't misinterpret what God is saying there. Okay, He is not saying these words the way a world-class assassin would say that to you. Something to the effect of, hey, you just saw my face. Now I got to kill you. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here whatsoever. No, God is simply trying to convey that he is so glorious, that he is so awesome, that you would actually get overwhelmed to the point of death. You ever experience something where you or someone you know witnessed something so amazing, so awesome, so absurdly beautiful that the person actually passes out, right? I've actually seen a situation where at a basketball game, UNC is playing Duke and UNC won, and someone literally was so surging with so much excitement, so much adrenaline, so much that they literally pass out for like 30 seconds. They temporarily shut down. Well, the Bible tells us that God is so awesome, that he is so absurdly beautiful, that he's so awe-inspiring, you would actually permanently shut down because you would never be able to recover from it. Right? That's how glorious, that's how splendorous God is. And because God doesn't want that to happen to Moses, what does he permit? He permits Moses to see his back. Yeah. And so what God ends up doing is he puts Moses on the side of the cliff that he was on, right? The cleft of the rock, puts his hand over Moses' face, and then slowly moves it back just so that Moses can get a small glimmer of God's backside. And what happens as a result? The dew literally starts glowing. Moses, according to the scripture, says his face starts radiating. It, that's all it says. We don't even know what that even means. But it says that the residual uh, glory of God's back is so amazing that it, it, it remains on Moses' face. And so in chapter 34, when Moses is uh, going back down to the people of God, how do they react? They freak out. And not in a good way. They literally start getting terrified of Moses. Like, ah! Screaming at the top of their lungs. It gets so bad that Moses had no choice but to cover his whole face just so that he could do his job of ministering to God's people. Right? Now what this tells us is that seeing God directly would actually have a very negative reaction coming out of us. Right? We would be filled with so much dread and we would feel such rejection. Now, if that's still not clicking for you, let me see if this uh, illustration could help. This is a real situation that happened to me once. Years ago when I was studying in seminary, I remember being at the mall, just reading and having a cup of coffee, just trying to, you know, wind down. And I remember there were like three girls behind me, standing behind me like three feet away. And just by the way that they were talking and the sound of their voices, they were clearly like like late middle school, early high school girls. And, and I didn't see them, I just hear them. Right? And they were very loud and very rambunctious. And clearly at one point, a beautiful woman must have been walking by them because one of the girls said these words, oh my goodness, look at that woman. She's so beautiful, ooh, she's so hot, ooh. Then a pause. And then the next words out of her mouth were, witch. Now, of course, she didn't really say the word witch. She said another word that sounds like witch, but obviously I cannot repeat it. Right? And the question is, why did that young lady react the way she did? Because that woman's glory, i.e. her beauty, made that young woman feel so inferior, so insignificant, and therefore so irrelevant. Okay? 
And as a result, it made her feel with such self-loathing to where she just couldn't stand being who she was. Okay? Folks, that's the reaction Scripture says would happen to us if God exposed Himself fully in all of it radiant glory, in all of His glorious beauty. Okay? We would be filled with such self-loathing that it would actually kill us. And clearly, that's not how God wants us to react whenever we come into His presence. And so what is He going to do? He's going to come to us in a way to where we would not respond in that way at all. And what else could that be except for Him to remain in a way that we could not see it, but yet sense His presence nevertheless. So we come to find that God being invisible in our life is not an expression that He cares less about us. No, quite the opposite. He cares about us so much. He cherishes us, evident by the fact that He wouldn't want to expose Himself in such a way that would make you hate yourself, okay? Now, if all of this sounds pretty deep, hold on. It's going to get a little deeper. Because here Peter is about to tell us another reason why God must reign invisible as he is present in our life. And this leads me to my next point, the revelation of the invisible God. Let's now read one more time verse 6, but this time let's include the first half of verse 7 where we read, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than the gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Let's pause right there. Here Peter tells us that even though suffering is not fun, nevertheless it is necessary. Why? Verse 7, so that your faith could be tested to have genuineness to it. Now let's zero in on that word for just a moment, genuineness. When we say something or someone is genuine, what are we saying about it? Aren't we saying that it's real? That it's authentic? That there's nothing false or fake about it whatsoever? That it's nothing but pure essence of what it is, of what it's claiming to be, that it has absolute integrity. Now the fact that Peter says that we need to go through suffering in order for us to be aware that the faith that we believe we have turns out to be genuine, that says something about us, doesn't it? You know what it says? It says there's a part of us that we're not capable of knowing. And if you think about that, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. Why? Because you would think that the one person who would know whether or not a person has genuine faith is that very person. Am I right? I mean, we can never know what's going on inside of another person, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're believing. But we most certainly can know what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we believe. And hence, you would assume that therefore we should be able to tell whether the faith that we have inside of us is real or not. And yet, Peter says no. That's actually not possible. You are not capable of assessing for yourself on whether or not the faith that you claim to have actually is genuine faith. You need something outside of you to come upon you to know whether or not something in you is real because you can't figure it out yourself. Okay? Now when you realize this, you come to astonishing realization. You know what that is? There is a part of you that you cannot see. Or if I could put it another way, there is a part of you that is completely invisible to you. Now isn't that interesting? Not only is our God invisible to us, but we are invisible to us. And the natural question that comes out of this is, what possible way can we ever see the part of us that is invisible to ourselves? 
And Jesus tells us the answer. In John chapter 14, we're starting in verse 16, he writes, or he says, excuse me, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he resides with you and will be in you. Here. Jesus is speaking about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Godhead. And notice how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. He cannot be seen. In other words, he is invisible. And one of the reasons why this Spirit of God is invisible to us is because he lives in us. That's right. He lives in the part of us that we cannot see in ourselves, okay? He does not... Uh, reside just simply out in the world. He resides inside of us the parts that we cannot see. And because that is true, do you realize what this means? It means God knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. There is nothing about you that is hidden from him. There is nothing about you whatsoever that is invisible to him whatsoever. He sees every nook and cranny that there ever could be seen of you. He knows it all, okay? And when you realize this, you come to another realization of why God is, is invisible. He's invisible so that he can make visible of you that is invisible currently to you. Okay? And here's what's so fascinating. This is something that even secular psychologists have observed in human behavior. I came across a fascinating article not too long ago of the New York Times Magazine entitled Defender of the Faith. And it's basically about Sigmund Freud the founder of the psychoanalytical movement. And basically the author of the article wanted to talk about the last years of Freud's life because during those last years, Freud wrote his last book, a book that many of his followers were shocked that he actually wrote. It's the book entitled Moses and Monotheism. Listen to what the author says about the book and in relation to Freud's perspective of all of this. He says this, quote, Freud argues that taking God into the mind enriches the individual immeasurably. The ability to believe in an internal, invisible God vastly improves people's capacity for abstraction. The prohibition against making an image of God, the compulsion to worship a God whom one cannot see, he says, meant that in Judaism, a sensory perception was given second place to what may be called an abstract idea, a triumph of intellectuality over sensuality. Freud's argument suggests that belief in an unseen God, unseen God may prepare the ground not only for science and literature and law, but also for intense introspection. Someone who can contemplate an invisible God, Freud implies, is in a strong position to take seriously the invisible, but perhaps determining dynamics of the inner life. He is in a better position to know himself, to live well. The modern individual must learn to understand himself in all of his singularity. He must be able to pause and consider his own character, his desires, his inhibitions and values, his inner contradictions. And Judaism, with its commitment to one unseen God, opens the way for doing so. It gives us the gift of inwardness, end quote. Here is Freud, this brilliant man, in a moment of incredible inconsistency to his own atheism, because he was a staunch atheist, recognizing why God had to be invisible. By being invisible, he makes visible to us what is invisible normally to us. But therein lies the question, what exactly does the Spirit make visible to us that normally we cannot see? Well, what are some of the things that Freud speaks of? He talks about our character, our own desires, our own inhibitions, our values, and here's the kicker, our inner contradictions. 
without putting it in biblical terms, Freud is referring to what? He's referring to our sin nature, our sinful nature. Okay? This is what the invisible God is revealing about us that we cannot see for ourselves. He is revealing our own wickedness. In fact, Jesus confirms that this is the primary role of the Spirit's work as He resides in our heart. Listen to what He says in John 16, verse 8. And when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of its sins and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. You see, just like the eyes on our face by themselves cannot see the face itself, so also the eyes of our heart by themselves cannot see the true condition of the heart. This is why the prophet Jeremiah once said these words, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You and I, we're wretched, we're wicked people. We're perverted, we're down and out, we're sinister and we're sinful, and we cannot see it. That's why we need someone who can be in us and see what we cannot see ourselves. And that's the invisible God. Now, at this point, I just gave you two reasons why God has to be invisible in our relationship with Him. The first reason I said is so that we wouldn't get overwhelmed with a massive sense of inferiority because God is so vastly superior to us. But then I just said in this point, it's so that He can make visible about us that is normally invisible to us, namely our own sinfulness. But when you put these two reasons together, you come to find that it really puts God in a difficult predicament. In some ways, it kind of makes God almost stuck in remaining invisible forever to where He could never manifest Himself to us visibly because if He did, first off, we would be filled with such self-loathing because we would feel so wretched for feeling so inferior to Him and because we're not aware of how sinful we are, to where we know that we're the one in the wrong, we would actually just blame God for feeling this way to where we want nothing to do with Him. And so the question is, how in the world can God overcome these issues to where if He ever did show Himself to us visibly, we wouldn't feel that way, but instead embrace Him the way He would want us to? Well, that leads me to the final point, the person who is the invisible God. If you look at what Peter says in verse 7, there he tells us how God overcomes this dilemma regarding his invisibility. He expresses it in that last statement, the way he ends the verse, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the way God can make himself visible to us, to where, first of all, we wouldn't be filled with self-loathing or turn a blind eye to our own sins, is if he reveals himself to us as Jesus Christ. In other words... The only way that we could see the invisible God is if we looked to Jesus. Because who's Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God, or as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, okay? That's who he is. And what that means is God came to us in a manner to show us that even though he is vastly superior to us, where he could genuinely say that he's too good to associate with us, nevertheless, he chose to come to us and associate with all of us as if we were his equals. Why do you think throughout Jesus' ministry he ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and very unseemly characters? Why did he associate in his inner circle those who were the uneducated, the poor, the widows, and the orphans? The answer is simple. So that we would know that he would not allow our humiliating inferiority stop him from loving us with his superior, exalting 
love. And we see this love being most preeminently expressed through his death on the cross. Because what did Jesus' death on the cross provide for us? First, it provided a means in which we would be forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. We would be completely forgiven of all the things that make us be so uptight with ourselves, something to where we would loathe ourselves to the extreme. And not only that, He gave us the power to become less sinful and more righteous, to where we sin less and less, and instead become more righteous, more pure, more godly, more wholesome, just like Him. This is what the gospel teaches us. It teaches us that through his death on the cross, Jesus undermined the two reasons of why he needed to be invisible in the first place. And when we understand that, when we understand that is what the cross did, you know what it does? It creates a growing hope in our hearts that one day we will certainly see this God face to face. And when we do, we're not going to be self-loathing. We're going to be God-approved. We're not going to feel condemned for our sins. We're going to be set free from our sins. And as a result of this hope that comes from believing in the gospel, something practically impossible starts becoming possible. You start loving a God to the extent to where it's almost as if you've seen Him, even though you haven't. You start to rejoice in the relationship that you have with Him, almost as if He's already welcomed you with a physical embrace, even though He hasn't yet. In other words... The eyes of your heart is able to see now what the eyes in your face will one day see. You will see the invisible God who loves you. And when you experience this love now, oh friends, you will sense God's presence. You will hear in the voices of your heart, your Father's voice saying, I am here, I'm by your side, and we will get through this. And you'll be able to endure whatever hardships, whatever heartache, whatever setbacks, whatever sufferings, whatever troubles and tribulations that you will have to face because you truly love the invisible God who loved you as Jesus Christ. Brothers, sisters, I pray that you'll hold on to that faith, hold on to that hope, and most importantly, hold on to that love. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us, especially in moments where we are overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, when we find ourselves uh, filled with anxiousness because of the challenges and the troubles that we have to endure. And Lord, it is so easy to where all we can see is just emptiness and absence to where we can assume that you're not with us and that you're not here and therefore you do not care. Father, I hope and pray that in moments like that, we would remember to look to your Son, Jesus Christ, who through his work on the cross undermined the very necessities to why you had to stay invisible, knowing that one day that will no longer be, and one day we will look forward to the day where we'll see you face to face. But until then, you give us faith, you give us hope, you give us love through your Holy Spirit to know that you are with us now, that we see you in the eyes of our heart, and therefore our hearts are strengthened to endure with courage and valor any resistance, any struggle that the enemy will throw our way. Help us to believe that with all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.